it was wartime. There are a number of emotions there. People who lost their families, who lost their properties, who lost the you know, houses and you know, everything. So that's the, in order for us to, pro, to proceed the project you know, smoothly, you really need to communicate with that local people. 311 is a date that is burned into the memory of the Japanese people, just as 911 is for Americans. At 2.46 p.m. on Friday, March 11, 2011, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake struck offshore of northern Japan, the largest in its history. 30 minutes after the initial earthquake in the town of Rekun Zen Takata, a tsunami of 30 feet of water crashed on shore. What was a thriving, picturesque fishing village of around 24,000 residents was hit with epic devastation, leaving a death toll over 2,000 people, over 4,000 buildings destroyed, and 13,500 displaced residents. I spoke with Dr. Kiyoshi Murakami about his work and leadership in the aftermath of the Great Sendai Earthquake. Dr. Murakami is Special Representative of the Mayor and Senior Executive Advisor for the City of Rekunzen Takata and Assistant Professor at Iwata University. We spoke at the RISE 2019 conference held at SUNY Albany, New York. We talked about how he helped organize efforts to recover from and rebuild after a catastrophic disaster. Come along with us as we ride the wave. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. I'm here with Kiyoshi Murakami, who is the special advisor to the president and visiting professor at Iwate University in Japan. He's also a special representative of the mayor and senior executive advisor to the mayor of the city of Rikunzen Takata. And I'm very pleased to have you join the podcast here. We just came from your great presentation. We're here at the RISE 2019 conference here in Albany. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for, for joining the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me this time. And this is the uh, great honor and pleasure to be here and making a presentation of the, my experiences and also the uh, university's experience as well as the, my city. So if I may just lead with a brief explanation of the topic of the discussion, because many people may not know the general geography of some of the places that we're referring to. In 2011, there was a 9.0 earthquake on the Richter scale. This is the Sendai earthquake uh, that we know about. Most people in the United States may know about this as the Fukushima disaster, because that was the area that was impacted as a result of the Sendai earthquake. And one of the areas that was affected was your home city of uh, Rikunzen, Takata. And what I would like, and since you are associated with the university, and the university played a major role there. What I wanted to first ask is there is usually after a major catastrophe, this was a major catastrophe in Japan, there's an urgency to get started. And I know that you organize things. How did you approach with getting started in the recovery phase? 
Yeah, first of all, the, just the correct, that's the dates. That's the March 11, 2011. So it's 3-1-1. So, yes, against the 9-11. So this is a very interesting, the dates anyway. So, but uh, anyway, uh, the time of the tsunami uh, earthquake and tsunami happens, the 9.0 scale uh, t- uh, earthquake actually hit in the afternoon. And then 30 to 40 minutes later, t- uh, the huge tsunami attacks that's the coastal side of the east part of Japan, especially the area of the Sanriku, we called. That is the little bit of north of the, basically the 300 miles north from Tokyo. That was a heavy hit. And then Fukushima was actually in between the, my city and Tokyo. So that, that is the probably about 150 miles of, uh, north from the Tokyo. So this is the area, and then, then, then we talked a lot about the uh, Fukushima issues, but uh, this is the result by the tsunami hit. So that's the tsunami actually ruined that's the uh, nuclear factory, I mean, the nuclear power plant. So that is the main main reason why the, the Fukushima was the issue also. Now, talking about my involvement with the rescues and recovery and reconstructions, when the tsunami happened, I was actually meeting in Hong Kong, I didn't have um, you know any contact, and because there's no telephone lines existed anymore, no no cell phones, no nothing, and also no electricity. So that's is why I could not contact them. However, after I come back from the Hong Kong to Tokyo, and I try to find out what's going on, and then since I was a very close friend of the mayor who was actually erected three weeks before that tsunami happens, I really needed to contact with him. And then six six days later, I went out. And I tried also tried to find out where the, my parents and my immediate families are. And then I found that the mayor was the a, a, one of the evacuation center, um, which because the whole of the city was completely wiped out, including city hall. So that's the, there's no public facility whatsoever. Only public facility existed was the uh, lunch preparation fa- facility for the schools. Mm-hmm. So that's only one. Otherwise, nothing there. So that I went there and then talked with the mayor and to make sure that's what we need to do. So from the day six, I get involved with the city. And I said, okay, we just set up what needs to be done. I said that time, the Japanese government was so slow to me to move on. So that's, I said, we call for assistance, not only within Japan, but also globally. So that's the, I put together the English statement in front of the media also at that time. So he conducted the daily press conference in Japanese, uh, mayor himself. I conducted daily briefing in English mm-hmm. to the number of the medias, including, you know, the CNN or the Washington Post or New York Times. The number of the, um, in the media people were there from outside of Japan. So that, that was also one of the things that I started getting get involved. So Japan has a very well-developed emergency response culture and infrastructure. But of course, as you related, the infrastructure in your town 
most of the public infrastructure was destroyed. There were tremendous loss of life, a number of casualties. We're talking in the thousands and casualties in the tens of thousands um, in the immediate town and the surrounding area. And of course, many of your students were impacted as well. How did you then establish, okay, we need to prioritize and we need to take care of ourselves, but we also need to move forward? How did you balance that initial response and then moving forward and making those priorities straight and agreeing upon them to create a unified sense of how do we proceed from here? Well, I think the priority first, uh, you know, the the city of Rikus and Takata, we had uh, 1,800 loss of life among 24,000 populations. And then, and then also 13,000 people were displaced from the house. So mostly, and then also more the main area, another was the central area of the city, whole, whole, whole city is gone. So that's the first priority was that how we try to rescue people. And then also those people who survived, they didn't have any place to live. They didn't have any place. They they were they didn't have any place to buy anything, because there's no nothing, no waters, no gas, no nothing. So and no electricities, uh, no telephone calls. So that's the day. Most of them were evacuated into the available houses or available. Uh, big houses, and then also that was the first day. From the second and third days, they are coming to that's the elementary school or junior high schools auditoriums. Those are become like a sort of ad hoc shelters. So they had to spend the time in that auditoriums, and then without anything, so that we had to provide number of the basic you know supplies to those people who survived. So. That was the first priority anyway. And then, of course, priorities comes, you know, changing, you know, day by day. So the first priority was this food and and the water. And and then of course the it was very freezing time so that you have to have you had to have the clothes, so we asked that the you know the, the publicly uh, we really need to have waters you know foods and you know Japanese people you know eat rice so that rice bowls we also then maybe bread is okay, that was a minimum thing for, at the beginning, and then you know once the days goes by and we start saying that we really need to have some people's once they have we need to have a diapers we need to have you know some people who are elders need to be changing underwears and people didn't didn't even didn't have any, any chance to take a showers and so very smelly, you know, mm-hmm. you know, one week later, very smellies, and they didn't have anything. So what we got was that the Japanese self-defense force, Japanese military army, brought everything to us and then set up the temporary passes to the, the certain locations so that people can get in to, to take a showers. So those type of things happens. So time to time, the times goes by, the, the priority actually keeps changing. Mm-hmm. So I know in your presentation you mentioned that the mission 
that you set out for Iwate University was to be fully committed to the reconstruction and development of the Iwate area. And just for our listeners, when we talk about the Iwate area, this is the prefecture of Iwate. Rikun Zentata is, is, the, is the municipality or town within that. So we can think about in the United States, we call them either counties yeah. in the south. In Louisiana, they call them parishes. In Canada, they call them provinces. Province is a little bit larger, more like a state. But my question to you is, how did you realize that mission? How did you engage with the key stakeholders, those people that had expectations about how this was going to proceed because you were working together with the mayor? Well, I think it's um, the stakeholders is the one is that the local residents anyway, and those people who survived from the tsunami, and and also imagine that the they didn't have all most of the all area been destroyed by tsunami itself, so that they didn't have anything, and then also under Japanese law we cannot reuse that the tsunami area for the residents. Residential as a residential area, so that so we really need to, to think about that where, where that we're going to place the people. So that's what we did was that in terms of the stakeholders, we contact, could communicate it or try, uh, talk with that the residents or maybe community leaders first. And also certain community, communities be basically destroyed. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the people actually staying as the one auditorium by the school to another. So that the one auditorium actually contains number of the people in that particular area. And the schools is based on that district or, or you know, certain communities. So that the schools actually become kind of center for discussion, center for um, the community. community house. Yes. So that the people, uh, we talk with that the pe- people who are taking care of the shelters. Mm-hmm. And, and then also there is the certain people assigned as the district leaders by the uh, uh, municipalities anyway, so that together with those people, we start talking what needs to be done. And, and then also, we need to discuss with central government. We have prefecture-wise, but uh, because the prefecture, capital of the prefecture is away from Rikuzentagara, like uh, 60 miles away, so that's what happens that this is very, very difficult to communicate. And then because we really need to do the decision making quickly. So that's the rather than asking the central government, I mean, the, the prefectural government to do something, we decide by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then also asking central government to get help. So, so rather than through that the, the prefectural government. So we directly contact the central government, communicate with them, and asking their support, financial support, as well as material support. So let me ask, that's not a traditional way that you would typically do things in Japan. Right. You would work through the prefecture right. to the national government right. and then wait for a response back from national right. to prefecture down. Right. But that was not really an option for you. No, because it was not peacetime situation. Mm-hmm. It was wartime. 
right? So, so that's the so that the irregularity is is to me it was known at that time. So, so that was the reason why we, I didn't go through that you know traditional practice. We wanted to do whatever needs to be taken. So that's the how we how we did it. You answered part of my next question, which is how was this program managed? Because you had a, a mayor who was still alive. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there were certain members of the government that may may have been impacted or were not mm-hmm. available. Some of them may have been lost. Mm-hmm. There were community leaders that you worked with. Um, how was that structure set up? What methods and tools? And I'm thinking from a project management point of view or program management point of view, how that was managed. Well, first of all, the, of course, the city municipalities, uh, city government, you know, they have a structure of the government, right? So that's the, we have uh, mayors and also city councils and also city officials, the, all, all departments. However, as I mentioned that 111 people among 400 city officials died. So that's, there was not functioning at all. And then you, you have a di- di- director of something, director of something. They are gone. They didn't, they, they were, they were, some, some of them died. The city official, city government was not functioning. However, administrations and also bureaucratic administrations been already existed anyway from beginning, uh, even though there's no part of the people there. So that's, we use this mechanism anyway. But because of the emergency situations, we didn't want to just stick with that the traditional or normal way, like you are director of uh, social affairs. So you have to do, deal with social affairs. No, you have to do everything. All of the city officials have to do anything they can. So that's the kind of the, the attitude we really wanted them to have. And then also that's the, how we did it. And then also I told you that, that we didn't go through that the traditional way of the bureaucratic procedures. We just jump into that straight, straight to the central government and to have to discuss about the issues. So, and so that we asked them to send off their officials, not only central government, but also neighboring prefectures or even the uh, prefecture governments from the, not from the Tokyo area, well, some, some of them Tokyo area, but also Osaka area, or maybe 500 or 600 miles away from the city. Mm-hmm. They send off the number of the officials to the Xantara to support, mm. to, 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 so that they dispatched those those the officials to the Xantara uh, to to conduct the, the uh, you know the administrative work uh, on not only few a few weeks it's like one year mm-hmm. so so that they continued still we have uh, 100 officials sent off by the other government uh, the local governments. So there was a mutual aid support mm-hmm. from the other governments. I wanted to get back to the management methods and tools mm-hmm. that you used. And I'm at least somewhat familiar with mm-hmm. some of the quality methodology that mm-hmm. Japan has in place. You know, there's Ishikawa mm-hmm. that we're, I'm familiar with at least and uh, many of the other quality gurus, the Taguchi, Kenichi Taguchi. And are these methods and tools, were they used at all? Were there other methods and tools that you used in terms of rapid planning and response to be able to reconstruct, create resilience? Because I noticed in the university yeah. programs that that was part of what you built out. Right. Yes. In terms of there are a number of the area, first of all, if 
you're talking about the reconstruction planning, uh, recovery planning, yes, we you know we have two portions. One is that the uh, hard development. Mm-hmm. First of all, we have to clean up Hosei. That's one. We had a number of the well, two million tons of the uh, debris, so we have to clean up all those first. And then the second thing is that in order for us to go through the construction you know, implementations, we had to clear that legal issues of properties. Mm. We needed to have that all of the property owners to give a sign and signatures to saying okay to use it. But as you may know, that we have a number of people died, including whole families gone. And now a word from Pinnacle Performance Management. I'm quoting from the book by Dr. Daniel Aldrich, who is director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program at Northeastern University. Dr. Aldrich is also professor of political science and public policy there. He wrote a book called Black Wave, How Networks and Governance Shape Japan's 311 Disasters. And I quote from page 37, Many residents did not evacuate because they believed that the various physical infrastructure protections in place, including massive concrete seawalls, earthen berms, and pine forests, would protect them. Some residents may have returned to their homes for belongings or gone to check on family members rather than following the Tendenko approach, fleeing without delay. Those who evacuated immediately had a much better chance of surviving the event. Only 3% of residents who immediately left Rikuzentakata, for example, died, while nearly 29% who did not leave died in the wave. Riding the Wave presents The Next Wave. So that we didn't have anybody who has a properties. So, so that what happens under the Japanese law, we had to find out who is a legal successors are, so that we get the all, all of the signature from each one of the successors. Mm-hmm. It took us so much time. So we we gone through that number of the processes like that. Mm. But at the same time, we really need, to, as I mentioned, that we actually go through that. We also planned what kind of the, the design, what kind of the urban planning that we're going to go. And that's actually that we, we ask the universities as well as the, uh, uh, the construction companies to, and then also central government to come up with the ideas. So one of the topics of discussion in our conference here has been, do you rebuild in the area that you're, you know, that has been hit? Do you relocate someplace else? How do you deal with resilience? And you made it clear it was from the government's role, you weren't going to rebuild in those areas or rebuild, put housing in that area. Perhaps you rebuild it another way, but you're rebuilding housing outside of the inundated, flood-prone, or vulnerable areas. Where did you relocate individuals back to? How did you manage that? Because that's a whole different, let's say, problem of finding space that's appropriate, zoning it appropriately, you know, looking at environmental impacts. That's a lot of work to do in a very short period. Right, right. Yes, that was a a big, good question. I think that was big issues. And so that in order for us to come up with the ideas and the construction plan, first of all, a lot of people among Japanese, they don't want to move out. 
they want to stay where, wherever they are, they were born, actually. That's the, they, they wanted to keep their properties, their landscape, uh, succeed from generations. Mm-hmm. So that's the main spirit they had. So that they don't want, they don't want to move. However, because of the tsunami actually reached to the certain area, they had to give up. So what what we did was that the the government, the local government, said that okay, we're gonna buy this one, purchase, and and then also give you new new place. And there are several options, the purchase, and then also give you money, and so that we get, they they can purchase the new landscape, which is relocating to the higher end. Another thing is that government actually. They have to give up the landlord, land, landscape, and then renew that landscape, and then reassign the landscape as as a, as a trade. Mm-hmm. So those type of the of, uh, of program we also conducted. So there are two choices, and of course some people didn't didn't have to buy purchase that's the landscape that uh, the city government prepared. Basically, the landscape we we actually because that the area covered by tsunami, we no longer use as the residential area. So that they had to move to the higher uh, uh, area, which is newly developed. Mm-hmm. We cut the mountains, we go hills, create a new residential area. Mm-hmm. Within and very close by to the city, mm-hmm. the city centers. So quite a number of people didn't want to move from the city. Move, they don't want to move out from the city. They want to stay where they were, mm-hmm. much closer to the uh, where they were. So that's the, the city government had to develop new residential areas. And then also they gave to those people who gave up the uh, landscape, which is covered by tsunami. And then also we elevated uh, also the city center 10 meters high because we didn't have enough enough landscape so that we had to elevate whole area, which is the half size, probably one third of the whole city of San Francisco. We elevated 10 meters high, which is like a 30, 30 to 40 feet high, whole area. And then we we actually d- developed that the new city, mm. city center, starting from the shopping malls, you know the the shops and also uh, libraries and all those, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's now it's become the new city, and then also the smart city, mm-hmm. with the uh, considerably, the uh, because of the uh, our experience, we really wanted to make sure that people who are elders and who are disabled, disabled, or should be able to enjoy their lives. Mm-hmm. So that's the that kind of in- inclusiveness and accessibility is the main uh, concept for the rebuilding whole city. So based on that concept of build back better, mm-hmm. uh, we use that concept. And for the new cities, also the resilient city, of course, and then also the whole city hardware as well as the software. We use the concept of this inclusiveness and accessibility. That that's the main my main area. Yes. One last question, and I appreciate your staying a little bit longer. What were the project management lessons learned? from this experience, from the first to the end, just key things that you would do differently and that you would, in speaking to an audience that would encounter a catastrophic 
or major disaster out there that they have to respond immediately and deal with and recover from these types of impacts? Well, I think it was, as a project management point of view, there are a number of emotions there. People who lost the families, who lost the properties, who lost the you know houses and you know, everything. So that's the in order for us to, pro, to proceed the project, you know, smoothly, you really need to communicate mm-hmm. with that local people. I think that it, it takes time, but that's maybe faster way. If we don't do it. We have a number of the cases that we actually stuck with that project because that people resisted. Mm. The reason why is that we didn't have enough communication. Mm. So I think it's very important for, for the, the local governments to proceed projects. You really need to communicate well with the local people who are residents so that the government hear about what they want to say. Sometimes they, of course, they, they say that they, they don't agree with it, but as long as you hear that they don't agree with it, but at the time of the implementation, of course, they don't want to agree, but they, they have to follow that's the you know, decisions. I think that's what we learned. Well, again, I want to thank you very much, Kiyoshi, for participating in the podcast and for uh, sharing with us your experience in uh, responding to the catastrophic effects of the Sendai earthquake and the tsunami that hit Rikunzata and your role at the University of Iwata University in that. Well, well, thank you very much also for having me in this, this broadcasting and also I, be, I was so happy and pleased to be together with you. Thank you very much. You may find out more information at www.pinnacleperformancemanagementalloneword.com. At Riding the Wave, we like to get your feedback and you may contact me directly at my email address. Andrew at pinnacleperformancemanagementalloneword.com one word.com thanks for listening and come back soon for our next podcast you've been listening to riding the wave hosted by andrew boyarski president of pinnacle performance management and clinical associate professor in emergency and project management at nyu and john jay college all thoughts are his own 